welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. And this week, we're going to be talking about pensions and savings for retirement, which, before you switch off, really is a very exciting topic, particularly exciting as I'm joined today by Claire Barrett, who is the consumer editor at the Financial Times and the host of the FT's Money Clinic podcast, as well as Carl Emerson, who's deputy director at the IFS and an expert on pensions. And they will be coming at this issue of saving and pensions from their own probably rather different perspectives. Claire, from the real world, as it were, of people making actual decisions in the face of the actual behaviour of the financial services industry. And Carl, who has looked for years at pension policy and in data sets, looking at what people actually do with their pension savings. We should probably start with a disclaimer that this is not to be taken as financial advice. We at the IFS conduct research into pensions and savings, and Claire, knowledgeable as she is, is not, I think, a qualified financial advisor. So don't take this as advice, but do take it as important information as you think not just about pension policy, but your own pensions. We're going to focus mostly on people who are currently saving for their pension rather than the current generation. But perhaps we we will start with the current generation because I think the current generation of pensioners, as it were. So I think one of the important contexts here is that pension saving for those of us who are not yet too close to pension age will look very different from those who are already receiving their Pension. So I'm going to start with Carl. Perhaps you can just give us a little background on, on, on the facts as to where pensioners today are in terms of how well off they are and how successful they've been in their investments and savings. Thank you, Paul. And in, if you look at today's pensioners, I think it's fair to say that on average, their incomes look really quite high relative to the working age population. Now, that's on average. Of course, there are poor pensioners. There are also some very rich pensioners. But if you take the pensioner in the middle of the pensioner income distribution, you look at their income after paying for any housing costs. And of course, many pensioners own their homes outright, so don't have any housing costs. Actually, that person has an income that's pretty comparable to the average after housing costs income of the person in the middle of the working age income distribution. So on average, pensioners no worse off than the working age population in terms of their incomes. And that's quite remarkable because actually we tend to think in retirement people will have lower incomes than they do when they're working. Their costs may well be lower. They don't commute anymore. And they may not be supporting children financially. So there's many reasons why to think their incomes on average should be lower. But actually today's pensioners, um, that's not the case. They're in fact on a, on a par with the working age population. And I think there's good reasons to think that today's working age populations won't be able to get to that level of replacement rate. And Claire, what does it look like from your point of view when you're thinking about the choices that people have once they get to pension age? I think that the choices that people have once they get to pension age now are much, much more complicated than they were a generation ago, just because of the mixture of different ways of saving into pensions that most people who've worked for more than one company will end up having. And overlayered onto that, there's the tax complexity and the advice gap problem. So to give you an example, one of our readers, Rod, who is coming up to the age of 60, emailed me. Lots of the readers emailed me, and I love it because it gives me access to problems that I'm not rich enough to personally experience um, (laughs) and then work through with people who are qualified to help, in this case, some specialist pensions advisors. 
So Rod's issue, common to many, is that he's got the combination of a defined benefit pension, otherwise known as a final salary scheme. They give you a guaranteed income for life until you pop your clogs. And they're treated very differently in the tax system to the other sorts of pension that most of us have, defined contribution or DC, money purchase, where you build up a pot of money and then you spend it in retirement, but it ultimately is exhaustible. So he was facing the bigger question of how does he make his money last throughout his retirement? Biggest problem for everybody there is that you don't know how long you're going to live for. The second problem was if he took any money out of his defined benefit pension scheme, it would trigger a set of tax consequences for the rest of his pension savings. In effect, like every move you make when you start to take money out of a pension will have a tax consequence somewhere else. For people who've got both types of scheme, that is complicated. But even for people, the rods of the future, if you like, who are going to have a combination of a SIP, a self-invested personal pension, a couple or maybe even more DC pots from different periods of employment, plus the state pension, any other cash savings they've got, equity release from a property. It's working out the sequence that you're going to take all of those things, the tax liabilities, and ultimately what you want to leave behind for your heirs. And we're finding that enormous numbers of FT readers are leaving the pension until last. This is what the wealth advisors are telling them because the tax treatment on pensions after death is much more favourable than other assets such as savings in ISAs, another popular form of retirement funding. And so people are kind of burning through those first, looking at selling off other assets like buy-to-let properties before they touch the money in pensions. So for the wealthiest, at least, the pensions problem is having too much. But for the rest of us, the pension problem is very much having too little. Well, that would be a nice place to be in, wouldn't it, uh, to, to have too much? Perhaps we should talk later about the fact that I've got a little bit of civil service pension, which I think kicks in without choice uh, when I get to 60. I don't know what that'll do to other bits of my tax affairs. And uh, yeah, I, I can't help but just repeat what you said about this totally bonkers way in which pensions are treated for inheritance, whereby personal pensions become the most essentially the most tax efficient vehicle for leaving money to your heirs. That's not what pensions are supposed to be about. It's a completely absurd tax loophole. And I'm using that language, which I don't normally use quite so strongly, because it seems to me wholly indefensible to be able to leave pension pots exactly as Claire was describing as the last thing you draw on because it's the most tax efficient way of leaving things to your children. Absolutely mad. <laughs> um, <that's, laughs> listeners can't see this, but Claire is nodding furiously as I am. Um... I'm, I'm glad that I've managed to lower the tone of the <laughs> IFS podcast. But yes, it, you're right, it is utterly bonkers. Uh, well, we are, we, are, we, are, we are agreed on that. But let's, um, let, let's move on. So we've got this complicated world for people who are reaching retirement at the moment, many of whom are in this transition generation, I suppose, as Claire was saying, they've had some defined benefit pension, but perhaps the latter part of their working lives is in the defined contribution or money purchase or personal pension. But they're still better off, almost certainly, as they approach pension age than the, than the younger generation. Um, perhaps, Claire, we could start by just asking you, I mean, in terms of that that, that, that younger generation, how, how should they be thinking about saving for retirement? Let, let's, let's go a few decades down, people in their 20s and 30s. Should they be shoveling money into a pension at the moment? 
So there's many good reasons to put money into a pension if you are young. Obviously, the younger you start, the longer your money has got to compound. Your employer will match a contribution, the so-called free money. So that's boosting the size of the savings that you're putting in, which can then grow tax-free over time. And of course, you don't pay any income tax, and in many cases, national insurance, on the money that you're paying into the pension. You will pay a little bit of tax on it when you come to take it out. But all in all, it's a brilliant deal. If you can be tax efficient and use salary sacrifice to put more of your income in there, then the benefits could be potentially even greater. The problem for young people is, number one, retirement seems a very, very long way away. Number two, there are a lot of competing demands for our cash now. Buying your first property, having your first child, often the two are linked. The age that people are able to achieve both on average in this country is getting older and older. So do you sacrifice pension savings for a period of time in order to get on the property ladder or in order to bring up a family and then try and accelerate it further on in life? Now, if you take me as an example, I prioritised buying a property when I was young. I didn't save into a pension at all until I joined the FT, by which time I was nearly 30. But I had got on the property ladder. Now, for me, that strategy's paid off because property prices have tripled or maybe even quadrupled in, in price since, since those days. So I've ended up with quite a valuable asset and I've managed to catch up on pension saving. But people today who are buying into the property market, are they going to see that level of growth? I doubt it. And at the same time, they haven't got money in the pension compounding away for the future either. And there'll be a longer period of time before they can pay off all of the mortgage debt that they've had to take out, even if they had had some help from the bank of mum and dad. So they won't necessarily be mortgage free in retirement like today's pensioners are. So all in all, it's a bigger struggle. And there are lots of difficult choices that young people are having to make. If they are in a great and privileged situation, then they'll be able to do both pension and property, likely because I suspect their parents are able to help them with the property bit. If they are in a still fairly good but less privileged situation, they will be able to prioritise one or the other, property or pension, either or. But if they're not in a great financial situation, then this is what really troubles me. The answer is going to be neither. They're not going to be able to save up to buy somewhere to live, So they'll have those high housing costs throughout the rest of their working life and retirement, and they're not going to be able to have any private pension savings to tide them over in the future either. The only thing they will have is the state pension. And a lot to pick up on there, Carl, I think, from some of the work that we've been doing, which um, looks at exactly some of those issues Claire's mentioning about the lack of uh, income among the younger generation, but also the choices they may have to make between housing and pensions but also some results that I think came from some of your work, which I think some people will find counterintuitive, which is actually that maybe it's not such a bad thing leaving your pension saving till later in life. Indeed, one of the difficulties we have when we say, if you talk to a younger person and try and assess whether they've saved enough for retirement, is it's actually quite hard to answer the question, how much should they have saved or should be saving? And that's because actually a lot depends on what they expect to happen in the future, how they think their income is going to evolve, how they think their spending needs um, are going to evolve. Some colleagues constructed a relatively simple economic model and put some of the key features of the policy and economic environment into that model to ask the question, well, what does this model predict about behaviour? 
And if you took a young graduate, yes, Claire's right, if their employer's placing some match saving in, perhaps through automatic enrolment, the model was suggesting they should save enough to get that employer match, get hold of that free money. But it was actually suggesting that over and above that, there were good reasons to really hold off on any pension saving, particularly if they were very confident that they were going to get earnings growth in the future. And the model was suggesting that perhaps as much as 80% of their pension savings should perhaps come in the second half of their working life and particularly be geared to years when their student loan will have been paid off, will have been written off, perhaps to years where their children are less of a financial burden on them, and perhaps to years where they're finished paying off that mortgage. Now, that model won't be right for everybody. And indeed, people who don't expect such strong earnings growth, or indeed people who are much more uncertain about the future might want to save more. And indeed, they may want to save more, but perhaps not put it into a pension. I think the other thing to remember here is that whether someone should save is a slightly different question about whether they should put the money and lock it away into a pension. So to give another example, if you're under 40 and you're self-employed, should you be putting money into a pension? Well, actually, a lifetime ISA would give you an upfront match on your saving. The money would be more flexible. It would allow you, for example, to access the funds to use to purchase a house. And when you get to 60, you can get hold of the funds anyway, and maybe you'd want to move the money into a pension at that point. So for younger people, I think it is a complicated story. It's certainly, I think, not clear cut that people should be saving more in a pension over and above enough to get any employer match. But that's all conditional on this world where this, they do then put lots and lots of money into a pension later on in working life. If they don't feel they're going to be able to do that, I think the story could look quite different. And I think I'm right in saying, Carl, aren't I, that when you actually look at people's behaviour, you really do see that people start saving like crazy in their 50s once the you know, once the mortgage is paid off and the kids are gone and maybe their earnings are reasonably high that that, that, that is for lots of people when when the savings really do start to pile up i think that's when the capacity to do more saving looks like when it really piles up actually when we look at saving rates over time we tend to see people if their earnings go up yes they save more but it's a, it's the same percentage of that higher earnings they don't seem to be ramping up the contributions very much. So typically over the lifetimes, we see savings profiles looking much, much flatter than perhaps what our economic models would suggest that they should be. And Claire, what's your, your experience with that? I mean, I mean, do, do, do you find from your interactions with your readers that, that people get a lot more interested in savings and pensions and so on as they get towards pension age? Oh, definitely. And every single financial advisor I know, including my own, says that people are more likely to come and make an appointment for the first time on a landmark birthday, typically 50, because that's when retirement sort of starts to hove into view. But increasingly later, maybe 55, when the pensions freedoms allow you to access your money, or even 60, as people think that they'll be working for longer. So the biggest problem with the excellent suggestions in Carl's research of having this flexibility to save more in later life or at different stages are the tax rules that are put in to govern how much we can save and when into a pension. The annual allowance, which has come right down to £40,000 a year for most people, and the lifetime allowance, which is just over a million pounds. Now, with the annual allowance, I said for most people, it's £40,000. But if you are somebody who earns a lot of money, you know, we're, we're talking well into a six-figure salary, that allowance is whittled down and whittled down and whittled down to a floor of just £4,000 a year that you can put into the tax shelter of a 
pension. Now, that is kind of a bad thing. But the worst thing is administering it. Um, you have to kind of get your crystal ball together and predict what your earnings might be in the forthcoming tax year. It's very, very difficult. You get a lot of um, interaction from, from readers about the annual allowance taper and the nightmare of, of working it out. And many of them describe themselves as being capped out of pension saving. They can't save a meaningful enough amount of money once they do hit the stride of their higher earning years. So they have to use alternatives, the ISA and the lifetime ISA for the under 40s, two brilliant alternatives, but again, £4,000 and £20,000 a year are the caps for those. And the other trend that I'm seeing increasingly in the last few years is for kind of people, it it used to be the, the very wealthiest people, finance, city workers, who would use these kind of extreme tax-efficient savings vehicles such as venture capital trusts or enterprise investment schemes where you're given a large tax break for investing in very, very risky startup companies which could succeed or fail. But increasingly, it's the doctors, the dentists, the head teachers, these kinds of people who are capped out of pension savings and looking at these risky yet tax-efficient ways of saving for the future and how that will all pan out. I don't like to think. (laughs) <laughs> yes, it's been a remarkable um, journey, the way in which pensions and other savings are taxed. There was a big change in the late 2000s, which was supposed to simplify everything in pensions, allowed uh, quite a lot, I mean, really substantial sums to be saved tax-free. And then over the years, particularly of the coalition government, but since 2010, we probably, I, I think Carl, I'm right in saying that the second biggest tax rise overall has been the reduction, at least until this year, has been the reduction in the effective amount that one can put into a pension, such that certainly for higher earners, as Claire was saying, they can now put more into uh, an ISA than into a pension. Carl, it may well be that a lot of people are listening to this and listening to what Claire's saying and saying, quite right too. I mean, why on earth should people, particularly people with high incomes, be able to save money in a pension free of tax when the rest of us are paying lots of tax on our income. And if you look into the HMRC numbers, it looks like this tax break is costing us tens and tens of billions of pounds a year. Isn't isn't this just a good thing that the, that the government has clamped down on it? Well, I think where the tax system is genuinely generous to people, I think it's pretty reasonable that the government puts a cap on that generosity and tries to ensure that its generosity is really being targeted at the people it wants to target it on. I think the problem is actually having a pension system where essentially you put the money in from your income before tax, and then you pay tax on all that money when you get it out again. That's not particularly generous. That's not the generous part of the system. For me, the generous parts of the system are the inheritance tax treatment that we spoke about, the tax-free lump sum, where I would question why somebody who's got £900,000 in a pension should be able to save more in that pension and get more tax-free lump sum as a result, and the national insurance treatment, which Claire mentioned, which again is very generous for people who can get their employers to make contributions on their behalf. So I do think you know pensions are generously treated, and I think there is a good case for making that treatment in some places better targeted, less generous for some. But I think we've gone about it the wrong way. It should be things like the tax-free lump sum, the inheritance tax treatment, plus the national insurance treatment that we should be looking at and thinking, are they well targeted? Could we spend the taxpayers' bucks better there? 
And the point about the tax relief we normally talk about, as you say, is essentially that whilst you get tax relief on the way in, you do have to pay tax again on the way out. And so some of these numbers which are associated with the cost, which don't take account necessarily of the tax on the way out, are a bit overblown. And indeed, pension saving essentially gives you an opportunity to spread the cost of the tax over your lifetime. But what do we know about what's actually effective in changing people's savings behaviour? I mean, Claire, when you talk to financial advisors and talk to your readers, what actually makes a difference to their behaviour? Is it is it the tax? Are there other things particularly one could do to encourage people with perhaps lower incomes and lower than perhaps the average FT reader has to save more? Well, definitely that carrot of tax relief, because the basic rate taxpayers, people who earn up to just over £50,000 a year, which is not an inconsiderable sum, they are the ones really who are disadvantaged with the pension savings because they get less tax relief because they only pay 20% tax. We get higher rate payers 40% because we pay more tax. So there have been arguments in the past that there should be a flat rate of pensions tax relief so that everybody gets the same amount of tax relief and thereby it removes the perverse incentive for those with the most money to save the most into their pensions. And if you think about it from the point of view of fairness, that to me would seem a better system because it's more likely to make more difference to people who are on lower incomes, working people, to have a greater buffer, to incentivise them more, to build that buffer of private pension savings so that they're not reliant on purely the state pension when they retire, as I fear an awful lot of people are going to be. Now, as soon as you start working in a professional job, you quickly become aware of the benefits and companies, it has to be said, are getting much better at selling the benefits of pensions within the workplace. But ultimately, one group of people that Carl mentioned are left out in the cold with all of this, which is the self-employed. Now, as the gig economy gets bigger and bigger, and as kind of sneaky forms of self-employment become more of a feature of the job system, I'm talking about umbrella companies, so-called PAYE freelancers, there are an awful lot of people who are excluded from auto-enrolment from the company contribution. And for them, if they are going to start saving into a a pension, the incentives to do so are even lower. So if we're talking about how we can get the most bang for the taxpayer's buck in the future, they are the kind of groups of people who I think really deserve to be encouraged with that carrot of saving more. The lifetime ISA has gone part of the way to fill that gap. It's a very useful product for self-employed people who are under the age of 40, but in many other respects, which we won't get into um, on this podcast, it's a terribly design product with an awful lot of rules that can trip up the unwary. And the kind of people who are getting those products are definitely not the sort of people who can afford to take financial advice. So just what's so worrying about that exactly? What are the things that can trip you up? The problem with the lifetime ISA is that once you have put the money in, if you want to get it out for any other reason than to buy a property or to access after the age of 60, you actually pay a penalty, which is more than the 25% bonus or interest um, that you've accrued. There's a, a penalty built into that on top. So you could actually end up with with less money than you started. Now, some people might say, well, that's actually better than the pension, because when you put the money into a pension, you absolutely can't get it out no matter what. So at least you could access the funds in a crisis, even though you would lose part of them. Well, indeed. I mean, it's, uh, 
actually, it's been interesting seeing one of my sons thinking about savings and you're completely baffled by all, everything around the lifetime ISA and um, putting his money into a, an ordinary ISA because it, well, it all seemed very much too complicated to him, I think, quite rightly. My son has done exactly the same. <laughs> Carl, um, uh, just from, from the economics literature and um, analysis and uh, evaluations that, 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 that you've done, what, what, what do we know from that about what actually government can do to persuade us to save more? So we know that financial incentives really matter, but they matter, we think, much more for where you save rather than how much you save. So of household wealth in the UK, something like 80% is in owner-occupied housing or pensions, and it's perhaps no coincidence that they're the two things that are particularly tax advantaged relative to other forms of saving. So if the government wanted to invent some new kind of vehicle, like it did with a lifetime ISA, if it makes it attractive enough, lots of money will appear in that vehicle. Questionable how much of that is really genuinely new saving rather than saving that just would have happened anyway, perhaps even savings that are just being moved from one source to another. But government can certainly manipulate using financial incentives where savings go. The other type of intervention that Claire mentioned a moment ago that has had really quite big effects on the pensions environment in the last decade is automatic enrolment. So back in 2012, about one in three private sector employees were a member of their employer's workplace pension that had been declining over time. We then gradually rolled out this policy where for most employees, the employer has to enroll you into the pension scheme, has to make a contribution of at least a minimum amount, deducts a contribution of at least a minimum amount from your salary. And you as an employee can then choose what to do. You can quit the scheme. You can change your behavior in other ways. And that's had a huge impact on pension coverage. Amongst the groups who are eligible, it looks like you always get coverage approaching about 90% in these schemes. So much, much bigger than what we were seeing before. It's a remarkable turnaround in terms of pension membership. But I think still some open questions. I mean, the, the minimum amount that an employer has to put in and has to deduct from your salary is not that great. So there's question marks about whether that's the right number. And we know lots of people who are brought into schemes via automatic enrollment end up contributing what it is that the employer sets. They end up in the investment fund the employer sets. They end up with the employer and the employee contribution that's been defaulted in rather than making an active choice. So there's big questions about whether those should be changed going forwards. We also, again, don't really know how much of this is genuinely new saving as opposed to um, money that would have been saved in some other form, although there is evidence from other countries that suggests actually much of it probably is new saving, which would be very welcome for those wanting to use these kinds of policies to induce greater retirement saving. Just finally, we've been talking about quantities of saving and uh, we've been talking about incomes in retirement, but uh, how these two relate to one another uh, is changing, isn't it? I mean, if you had had, as very few people now do, one of these traditional defined benefits pension schemes, you would have saved a certain amount and your employer would have put a certain amount in. And you'd know pretty much what you were going to get as a pension. And if things went badly for the fund, you'd still get that pension unless your employer and the pension fund itself went bust, which happens occasionally, but not very much. But we're not in that world now, are we, for two reasons. One is that the money you put into, whether it's auto-enrolment pension or some other form of defined contribution pension, you don't know how much you're going to get out of that. It depends on interest rates and what happens to the stock market and so on. And interest rates, at least, are much lower uh, than they ever used to be. And secondly, 
you don't actually get a pension because you're not buying an annuity at the end. You're certainly not forced to, and most people don't. You've just got a pot of savings. So, Carl, what does that tell us about the risks that people are, are, are running with their savings? And indeed, what do we know about the possible consequences of these extraordinarily low interest rates that we've had for such a long time now? I mean, taking the second first, I mean, the, the very, very low interest rate environment and essentially the fact that you're saving in a defined contribution pension and not in a defined benefit scheme, which effectively was offering very, very high returns, means that essentially retirement incomes have just got more expensive relative to working age incomes. So to achieve the same kind of retirement income now, you're going to have to do a lot more saving than you would have had to do in a world where interest rates, the effective return people could get remained high. And indeed, if the price of something goes up, you might want to buy less of it. And that's one reason why today's working age population might not want to essentially get to the same kind of levels of income replacement that recent retirees um, have been able to enjoy. It just might be too expensive in terms of how much spending they'd have to give up through their working lives to get there. But as you suggest, this is not just about the level of income that people are getting. It's also very much about the risks around that income and how people manage it. So people have got to make investment decisions as they accumulate their pensions right up to retirement. Individuals are exposed to the risk of those investments being bad ones, perhaps because they're unlucky or they make bad judgments with their investments. People who are in defined benefit schemes in the past didn't have to worry about that. And then when you get to retirement, that's not the end of your decisions. You don't just buy an annuity and that's your income fixed. You've got to manage that pot of money, presumably manage it down through your retirement, thinking about how much you want to leave to your heirs if you do want to, thinking about you know how much you want to spend early in your retirement when perhaps there's certain things you want to go and do, how much you want to leave aside for later in your retirement, and how much you worry about the possibility that you might live a lot longer than you expect and you don't want to run out of money. So managing all of that is very, very difficult. It's going to be very difficult for somebody at the start of their retirement. I guess I worry it's also going to be very, very difficult for people as they move much further through their retirement, which is not something we've seen yet. Those pension freedoms came in in 2015. It's going to be a while before we get to see how well do, for example, 90-year-olds manage the decumulation of their pension pots over the remainder of their lives. And Claire, can I end up by asking you about that particular issue of choices over annuitization. I mean, what do you do with the pot once you get to 60 or 65 or 70, whenever it is that you uh, have decided that um, you're going to start relying on your pension? And let's ignore this nonsense about wanting to keep it for inheritance. How do people make a sensible decision about how to manage their, that pension pot post-retirement? Well, in response to what Carl said, it used to be that financial advisors kind of waved goodbye to their clients when they hit retirement age, took their tax-free lump sum, used the rest to buy an annuity. That was it. You know, they had that secure income for life going forward. Now, there's changes that we've seen that prompted the move towards pension freedoms where nobody had to buy an annuity unless they wanted to, of course, were prompted by wider changes in the financial markets and the fact that the amount that you can buy as an annuity is far, far less nowadays. The alternative is what's called drawdown. So you leave your pension funds invested in the stock market and you draw down a certain percentage of income from those investments over time. Now, if you adjust the percentages, so if we have seen big falls in the stock market, you take slightly less income. If the stock market has some good years and you could perhaps take slightly more 
that is how you manage the pot without hopefully exhausting it by the time you are exhausted. (laughs) But of course, you need the help of an advisor to do that throughout. So in one way, great for the advisory profession because they can now charge you a fee every year, but it's completely changed the way in which we manage our finances in later life. And a couple of recent cases I've been reading about in the newspapers also involve capacity issues. If people live for longer, they're in charge of their estate, how long can they go on doing that for managing their money before they have to pass that over to a younger relative to try and help them and do so in a way that it's not going to cause problems. So there's an awful lot to think about. Add to that the the tax limits and the potential tax traps that retirees can can trigger, um, depending on which part of which pension they take when. There are all kinds of hidden bear traps uh, waiting to, to catch out retirees. And the pension system, which should be, in the sense, gloriously simple, put more money aside for today in order to provide for tomorrow, suddenly becomes nightmarishly complicated. Now, the problem with that, of course, is if things get too complicated, then people are just going to put it in you know, the proverbial drawer at home where we put all of the paperwork from pensions providers and the like that we are baffled by upon first read and think, well, we'll get around to that at some point. People are just going to not make decisions about any of this stuff. They're just going to say it's too complicated. I can't deal with that now. And then the consequences in the future really will be worrying. So we need to make things simpler, give people clearer choices and think very hard about how we incentivize those who really need to save for retirement but are not saving at the moment. Sorry, I was going to end there, but I mean, this is just too interesting. <laughs> what, 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 what actually could you do? I mean, what, what would you do if you were to do one or two things which would really make this simpler? In the bigger, bigger, bigger picture, the FT has set up a financial literacy charity called the Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign, because we think it's appalling that there's nothing on the school curriculum, the university curriculum, further education. Also, learning can continue within the workplace, but there's nothing that mandates young people have to be taught about money. And when the risk is all on you, which it is now with pensions and retirement, we should be teaching people about how this stuff works. And we should be teaching vulnerable groups, young workers, more about how their money and the decisions that they can make today are so important for tomorrow. But that's really, really bigger picture stuff. In the short term, I think that at some point, a future government, probably not this one, is going to have to tackle the issue of pensions tax relief and how fair it is. I know that FT readers um, up and down the land will be groaning if I say that you know we shouldn't get these benefits as higher rate and additional rate taxpayers, but we shouldn't. There should be a fairer system and it should be more equitable to people further down the food chain who need to put more money into retirement savings now. But the bigger problem with all of this is trust in the system. Now, with long-term savings products like pensions, if you change the rules, this is why successive chancellors keep tweaking the rules um, just a little bit. If you change the rules, people get very annoyed because they've made decisions for their future decades away based on what the rules are now. And they don't want to see the rules changed in a way that could penalise them in future. They get very, very upset. So we can't shy away from the fact that reforms need to be made. Because if we keep putting off this decision, if politicians keep putting off the decision, then they're passing on the problems for the future. And I think that one of the reasons that chancellors in the past have failed to really grasp the nettle with pensions is because they know that if they do make any big changes that could be unpopular with the electorate, 
the result of those changes are not going to be known until, you know, they may be six feet underground in some cases because of the huge amount of time it takes people to save for retirement. And in the same way, the lack of decent policy that we have had and the big risks that have been taken with pensions freedoms, with allowing the mass market to access previously high-risk products that you couldn't buy without an advisor, like Drawdown. We're not going to find out the consequences of those policies until many decades into the future. So it's quite a dangerous game that we're playing with pensions. But the one thing we do know is that if people who have less money are encouraged to save more, that's got to be a better result overall than encouraging those with the most money to get more in. Well, Thank you. I mean, I have to say that wasn't all terribly encouraging in terms of, uh, you know, people wanting to put money into pensions. At the end of that, I kind of feel that uh, it's all much too difficult and I really will put my money in uh, under the bed. <laughs> and, um, the, uh, uh, and I think that is part of the unintended consequence of what has become an incredibly complicated system. But as you say, Claire, one thing's for sure, the financial advisors are going to be doing very well for a very long time as they as they try and guide the rest of us through this maze of regulation, tax law and complexity. So thank you, Carl. Thank you, Claire, for a fascinating discussion of pensions, both public policy and how we should think about it as individuals making our own savings, though to repeat the warning at the beginning, this was not constituting financial advice of any kind. Um, we'll be back with you in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us and share the podcast. And to see more of our work, do visit www.ifs.org.uk. And if you do want to further support the IFS, you can become a member for as little as £5 a month. Not much in the context of what you might need to save as a pension. And you can find more information in the episode description. 